Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Do you find it difficult to live godly when everyone around you is not? You're not alone, and it's not a new problem. Over 2,500 years ago, a teenager was forced to live in exile in one of the most ungodly cultures the earth has ever seen. Despite the challenges and persecution, he found a way to honor God in everything he did. His example is still powerful for us today. Join us now for a six-part series on Daniel as we learn to live life in exile. a series on the book of Daniel we've been doing now for a few weeks matter of fact this is part four and the theme for this series has been learning to live as a minority in exile the idea comes from this an exile is someone who lives in a foreign culture and if we are Christians then we do need to understand that we live in a foreign culture the world around us does not make its decisions our politicians do not make their laws our actors and producers do not make their movies based upon what the bible says should or should not be we live in a foreign culture and although many people may say they're a christian if we actually look at the people who live their lives as christians people who actually read the bible worship regularly and so forth then we also know we are in the minority that's where this whole idea comes from. We are a minority in exile, just like Daniel was. Daniel was literally picked up when the nation of Israel and therefore Judah as well was conquered, and he was carried off into Babylon and spent the rest of his life there living in exile. So that's, that's what we're trying to uh, talk about. And uh, so for some areas of our lives, we're going to discover it's really easy to live as a minority in exile. Like here in the Bible Belt, we tell people, hey, I'm going to church Sunday morning. That's not, a, that's not a tough thing to do, is it? Because, you know, everybody kind of accepts that. Even if they're not going, yeah, I was at church yesterday. No big deal. But then there are other areas of our lives where it's a little bit more challenging to live as a minority in exile. And, and I would say I am one of those typical, matter of fact, two typical people who were raised here in the South. So when I was in high school, I, I'd grown up going to church here in the Bible Belt and in high school and then in college. I was just like you would expect from almost everyone who grows up here and says they're a Christian, which is in certain areas of my life, I was a pretty good Christian. People who knew me in that area would say, man, Jimmy, he's a great guy. He loves Jesus. But then in other areas of my life, some of those friends would say, he goes to church. Are you kidding me? Have you? And we do the same thing. I think we need to ask ourselves a question. Where do you struggle? Which areas of your life are you having a hard time knowing how to live as a minority in exile? Is it after a, a long day of work and you and, and some co-workers go out for drinks and, and, and they say, thank God for Uber because it has been such a bad day, I am going to forget everything that has happened. I'm going to have like seven of these, right? And, and you stop at one and say, no, uh, actually, you know, uh, in, in my faith, the Bible says that uh, I shouldn't be drunk. So, what? And then they start mocking you. Is it easy to be a minority in exile? How about if you go out to lunch with the guys and uh, you're newly married, all the rest of the guys are yet to be married except for one. He's been married for a long time and he hates his wife. So everybody else is making jokes and remarks about the waitress. Is it easy for you to live as a minority in exile or do you join in? Do you laugh? What do you do? What if you're, you're one of the girls and you're out with all the other girls having coffee and everybody starts going in on, on, on their husbands and bashing their husbands? Do, do you find it easy to live as a minority in exile not to dishonor your spouse even if you could because his actions match up? What, what do you do? Where do we 
Where do we struggle? Where do we fit in? I want to read a quote to you that this is really our goal for the series. Again, to learn to live as a minority in exile. And this quote is uh, nearly 2,000 years old, at least 1,900 years old. This quote was written about 130 AD, just after the New Testament was finished. And it was written to the tutor of Marcus Aurelius, saying that these people that I have met, these people that I observe, are, are quite different. And so let's see what, what people have been saying for 2,000 years nearly about Christians. It says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country or by speech or by dress. For they do not dwell in cities of their own or use a different language or practice a peculiar life. But while they dwell in Greek or barbarian cities according as each person's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the land and clothing and food and other matters of daily life, yet the condition of citizenship which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as sojourners. They share the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners. Every foreign land is to them a homeland, and every homeland a foreign land. They spend their existence upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. You see, here's, here's what we want to do. We want to have people who look at us living our lives equally perplexed, saying, wait a minute, but they're Americans, and yet they're Christians, and yet they live in this world, and yet they don't. And yet, I mean, I just want people to look at us and go, I just don't get you. And so what we're going to do today as we pick up the story, we're in Daniel chapter 3. We're discovering the next thing that's going to happen. If we're a minority in exile, our allegiance to God will be tested. It will be tested. There is no way that you can spend life upon earth in a foreign culture saying, God is my God, without that being challenged at some point. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're going to be in uh, uh, verse 1, starting right at the beginning of chapter 3 here. And so we've got King Nebuchadnezzar has decided to do something cool. Check this out. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth uh, 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So to give you a little bit of perspective, this statue is 90 feet tall. It is 9 feet wide. No, we do not know what the statue is. It could be of, of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. It could be of some Babylonian gods. It could just be some sort of symbol of how great their nation is, much like we've got a Washington Monument or something, for an example, that might not make sense to someone else 2,000 years later or so forth. So we don't know what the statue is, but he has, he's built this statue. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province. That's, that's so he doesn't make sure he leaves anybody out. That's an exhausting list. And all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, all of those people again, all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Somebody's too detailed when they write this story, don't you think? And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, very important words, hold on to those. You are commanded, O peoples, O nations and languages. That when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that the king had set up. What we are discovering here is this is a story about allegiance. What are you going to have your allegiance to? And in this case, it's actually more focused on allegiance to nationalism, saying that we are great and that our ways are great. Our nation is great. And, and the problem with nationalism, it's actually very different from patriotism, by the way, which I'm going to clarify in just a second. But the idea of nationalism actually blurs together politics and religion. It makes them one. It says that our kingdom, our national kingdom, is, is our security, and our national leaders are our saviors, and we begin to believe in the goodness of our country as though it's going to equal out the goodness of God somehow, which is not the same. So I think it raises a really important question for us at this point. How can a Christian, how can someone who lives as a minority in exile upon the earth and in the United States be a patriotic Christian? Can they? And my answer would be yes. And, and so I, I have come to understand as I've done some research and came across people who are refusing to do, for instance, the Pledge of Allegiance because of, of faith reasons or whatever, I, I understand their position of saying that I have a, have a difficulty in my own conviction pledging allegiance to other things other than God. I, I respect where they are with that. But I also understand that we give our allegiances to many things. Think about this. Anybody been married? Or is married. That's a better way to say it. Anybody married? Remember that wedding ceremony and the vows you said? You know what those were? A pledge of allegiance to another person under certain circumstances for life. That's, that's what we pledged. How about the inauguration of the president? Is that not a pledge of allegiance to support the Constitution to a certain role to his office? I believe that we can make a pledge of allegiance as long as we understand our allegiances have to remain in order. See, that's the real issue, is is your allegiance in order? Are you declaring an allegiance to something wrong? So I think that we can be patriotic Americans and still be Christians. I think that we can say, I honor my heritage. I respect those who came before me. I, I pay respect to those who have died in order for me to stand freely on this stage because we have brothers in our kingdom that in other countries cannot do what I'm doing this morning or what you are doing this morning. And I can say, thank you, God, for the freedom that you've established here and that you've allowed me to live here. And, and I can shoot off fireworks once a year to celebrate that. I think that we can be patriotic Americans. And I think depending upon where your conviction lays, I think that it lies. That's correct. I was educated here in this particular state. Lays, lies. I think that you, you and your own conviction can choose to pledge the allegiance to the flag, which has become very controversial these days. And that's your own conviction, however you want to do that. But I think that it's easy for us to say, I have secondary allegiances in my life. I have tertiary allegiances in my life. But I also have a primary allegiance in my life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with pledging allegiance to a wife or, or to a flag as long as we understand that God comes first. God is always first. So... As we look at the situation where they're being asked to bow down to a nation, to its religion, to its leaders, and to its greatness, and they're about to refuse to do that, I want you to understand this, this nation wasn't asking them to be patriotic. It was asking them to be nationalistic, which is very, very different. And if, and if I didn't really get 
that idea across to you for the sake of not giving you a history lesson, I'm going to say the closest point of reference for you is probably Nazi Germany. That's a nationalistic move. So you can think about that similar to the kind of idea that's happening here. Because we're about to see what happens when someone doesn't join in in a national ceremony. We're about to see what happens to them. So the second question that, is, that gets raised at this point we just read I think is very important. When you're in a nationalistic situation and you are a minority in exile, and when things are not going according to Scripture, when? When is it time for us to live quietly and be a witness, and when is it time for us to rise up and rebel? You know, we see a lot of things in the news today. I get asked this question a lot. I've had people literally come in the office during the week and say, I'm glad I caught you. I want to ask you, what do you think about this law that just got passed? What do you think about this thing we heard just happened? Or what do you think about this that the, the Congress is trying to do or whatever? And, and uh, the same thing really happened way back in the 70s, by the way. It's not a new thing under the sun, just so you know. In America, there are laws being passed that do not agree with the Word of God. But way back in the 70s, fortunately, I was not there, just... I was there, but anyway. So I'm telling you stories from older pastors of mine who, who they were really dealing with the dilemma when Roe versus Wade was being dealt with. Should we move out of this country? Should we leave? This is an ungodly act. Should we go somewhere? But the voice of wisdom prevailed. If we leave every time an ungodly law is passed, how do we expect to have any influence, which is what we talked about last week? And yet, how do we know when to rise up and rebel? And the answer is exactly the words that King Nebuchadnezzar, well, his, his person said here, which is, you are commanded. You are commanded. And that has been the difference ever since Roe versus Wade, is no one here is commanded. It is your choice. We can live in the midst and still have influence because no one has commanded you to participate in that. So if you're wondering, when do we say enough is enough, this law will not stand for, is when you are commanded to go against your allegiance to God and His ways in order to fulfill it. And I think that's a pretty fair definition, which hopefully kind of brings some things into context of what you're dealing with in our world today. So, let's go on with the story and find out what happens to a few people who decided not to bow down. So therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, again, if you've been following the story, we know who those folks are, they came forward and maliciously accused the Jews so just last week, we discovered it was the Jews who saved the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans should be dead. And, and these guys saved their behinds, and now look at what they're doing. So if you ever have coworkers who stab you in the back, you're not alone. There you go. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Again, that's not patriotism. That's not a free nation. Do you guys understand kind of where we're going with nationalism now? Is you will worship what we do as a country the same as if it were a religion. And it's all one and you have no option. That's not a fun place to be. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. Does anybody perceive some jealousy here? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I definitely think we're seeing a theme of allegiance here, don't we? 
Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, uh, this is crazy. He's giving them a second chance. Have y'all noticed that? But if you've been following the story and you've already seen what God has done with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'd understand why he's doing this. Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of all those instruments to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And catch this, who is the God? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Let's pause real quick and just touch on something here. One of the biggest struggles that I see with Christians is they don't understand why God doesn't always show up at a certain time in a certain way in a certain fight that they're having. And I think part of it is because we pick fights with enemies. We have enemies on earth and we get into a mess with our enemies. Here's here's what's cool about this. Their enemy just picked a fight with their God. They don't have a problem anymore because God's about to show up and take care of it for himself. And so part of the thing is we get too caught up fighting flesh to flesh and not letting them get involved with God. Or if they're not involved with God, don't worry about it. But, but let them deal with what they're going to say about your God because your God will always show up to defend himself. So this is kind of cool. When you get into something with somebody and they attack your God, all you got to do is stand back and laugh and wait. Just wait and see what's about to happen. Speaking of that, let's see what's about to happen here. So. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Did they really just say to a king, the greatest king of the greatest empire on the earth, Hey, dude, we ain't got to answer your question. Translate. South Carolina Ebonics, in case you're wondering. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And notice their change of verb here. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, are y'all catching all of this? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have not set up. I want to show you something. Here's the first thing that happens. The answer is challenge. Who is the God who can save you? Oh, well, just so you know, the God we serve, he's able. So we've answered your challenge. We've let you know that's our God. He can do it. But here's what I love. They go immediately into a pledge of allegiance. Here's what they say. We would rather die with our allegiance to God than live with our allegiance to you. So in case you were wondering what God can deliver somebody, is that God. But he may not. But either way, and I have to tell you the truth, I've known this story since I was a kid. I've read the Bible many times, and I did not catch their double entendre until this week when I was preparing this message. Because here's what they said. Our God is able. Then they said something else, and then they came back and said, but if he doesn't, it's okay. But they said something in the middle, and they said, he will deliver us out of your hand. Did you guys catch this? And here is where we mess up in our modern world. We don't understand what they just said. God can, he may not, but either way, he will get us out of your head. You know what he's saying? Here's what they're saying. 
If he delivers us out of this fiery furnace, it proves you got no control over us. We're not in your hand. And if we die, guess what? We are not in your hand anymore. We're in his and we're out of this place. Either way, you can do what you want. We may live. We may die. We don't care because in about 10 seconds, you are not in control. How cool is that? We don't see the world that way. We're too busy going, no, I don't want to die. I got to go to Disney next summer. I've got my vacation paid for already. No. Whatever your situation is, we get so caught up in how many years we think we're supposed to live on this earth. I have never seen something wreck people's faith as much as death based against a number. When someone dies at 95, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. But when someone dies before 95, it shipwrecks another person's faith. Why? If we understand this, I'm in his hands. And if, if, if I come out of the furnace or if I don't come out of the furnace, either way, this world has no grip on me anymore. I, I wrote this phrase down in my notes to see if this, this works for us. They chose death over death. They chose death over death. They said, I would rather die on earth than die eternally. I will keep my allegiance to God before I will have a few more days of toil and pain and sickness and misery. I mean, seriously. Sometimes we just need to get a realignment of our perspective that says, okay, you know what? God can get me out of this bankruptcy. But if he does not, either way, I'm good. Because either way, either way, God still got me in his hand. God can, can heal this marriage. God may do something different with my spouse. I don't know, but either way, you know what? God is sovereign over where I'm headed with this thing. If we could learn to just trust God, if we could learn to choose death over death, I would rather die to anything right now here than to die to forever with him. It's a pledge of allegiance, and I think it's incredibly powerful. And so what happens? Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Huh, surprise about that. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Y'all do understand, it was already hot enough to burn. I mean, that's kind of the definition of fire. Fire is going to burn, fire is going to kill. I mean, do we really have to amplify it? Anyway, we had a good little joke with the staff this week. One person was like, oh, I guess it's hot enough to kill now. I'm like, what? Pretty sure it was about seven times ago. Anyway. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Skip down a little bit. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of, oh, check it out, the most high God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. This is the story you know that you've known since you were a kid if you grew up going to church and Sunday school. These are the children's stories that we know. And as I told you when we started this series, we weren't just going to talk about children's stories, and hopefully by now you figured out how we're making Daniel a little bit more interesting than that. But I do want to say I think this is where 
as children, sometimes we, we might have been given a disservice. You see, here's what we basically teach kids is that, that these three people said, God will deliver me, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace, and God delivered them. And we tell it as a story of deliverance, that you can trust God, and he will always show up in the way that you think he should and that you expect he should. Do I have any adults in the room that are saying, hey, but what about? And so I'm going to try to, to at least bring this back to an adult level. Because the reality is we know sometimes people die for their faith. And we know sometimes people die in other ways. You may not die with your life, but you die in other ways for your faith because you're not willing to compromise in a certain sales tactic so your financial gain may die for your faith because you choose to have Christian integrity. And we could do this all day long. There is suffering sometimes. There is not always deliverance. Sometimes there is suffering. And I could very easily go right now into like a, a many, many, many part series on why we suffer. And, and we could talk through all of the options and what happens there. I don't have time for that. So I'm going to give you a one-liner that we can just try to hold on to for now. But the only reason we are on earth is to bring glory to God. And saying God is good in the midst of cancer is way more meaningful than saying God is good when you win the lottery. So there's a lot that can come out of suffering. There's a lot about that. I've actually been looking about doing a whole series on suffering to try and help us understand it, maybe so it won't shipwreck our faith so much. But the real issue for us right now is to look at how our allegiances are challenged when we do not receive deliverance as we expected, and instead we receive suffering that we're not interested in. We get really messed up. I'll, I'll tell you a little story about my wife and I when we uh, were, were first married and kind of going through life, and, and uh, for us it was a financial issue. So I was a teacher, then became a pastor. Finances have never been one of the things, we, we've never in our lives uttered the, the sentence, what should we do with the extra money, honey? Never, never put those words together until this morning. That just doesn't happen that way. And so we would do one of those things just like many of you probably struggle with. Okay, allegiance to God and my finances says 10% to him first before anything else. And, and so, you know, at first I would try to at least do it, but I'd do it backwards, which is if there's 10% left at the end of the month, I, I would try to give that to God. But guess what? Then you don't really have an allegiance to God. So that doesn't work. So then we tried the other way, which is, okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to tithe. We're going to write the check to God first, 10% first. And some of you in here have those miracle stories where then you can't pay your mortgage, but you get a check in the mail for the exact amount down to the penny of your mortgage, and it came in. Some of you have had those kind of testimonies, right? Somebody with me here? Okay, guess what? We never had that happen. Never. Never. Because we got to suffer. We got to suffer and learn how to change our finances and to change our ways of doing things. And to say, here's the real question is, are you going to be allegiant to God in your finances only if a miraculous check shows up? Or are you going to keep your allegiance to God by taking the new car and selling it and driving something that's got 14 shades of Bondo and three different colors of paint? When you have to suffer, where does your allegiance to God begin to get challenged? At what are we going to do? We have an allegiance to God. That's what this is all about today, an allegiance to God when things are convenient. We have an allegiance to worship when it is 85 and sunny. But when it is 45 and rainy, let me tell you, the allegiance to worship goes down big time. 
Like we could all sit on the front three rows. You want to know, I am one of the only people in Columbia that is thankful for the resignation of Steve Spurrier. Because, follow this with me, all you're going to throw things at me, Gamecock fans. It's not my fault, though. Attendance for worship when the Gamecocks had a game 7 p.m. or later dropped 25% every single time because there was actually an expectation we could win and do well. But ever since Spurrier resigned, we're like steady on Sunday mornings, and it's awesome because you guys are like, well, yep, we're not winning. I'm a Duke fan. <laughs> Basketball. I don't even know what people are worried about this season of the year. The question, where, where is your allegiance when you're called to suffer? Here's what I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, look, we may get delivered or we may suffer, but our allegiance to God is not in question. I'm with Shadrach. All of you under over 30, ask somebody under 20 to translate what that was I just did. Y'all get that? There you go. There you go. That's going to be our new series. That's where you title it that. Everybody put something out on Instagram. Hashtag, I'm with Shadrach. Anyway. All right, so here's what I believe. The greatest competition. The <laughs> They're on the back row going, Instagram? What is that? Here's what I believe. The greatest competition for our allegiance to God is not. It is not a country. It is not a political party. It is not a social cause. It is not an organization. The greatest competition for our allegiance to God is ourselves. Let's make it personal. The greatest competition for my allegiance to God is me. Can you say that with me? I think it's a good confession. The greatest competition for my allegiance to God is me. That is our issue. Many of us are never going to know if we would question our faith when someone puts a gun to our head and says you can't worship freely most of us are never going to experience that but our allegiance to God is going to be challenged when someone makes fun of you and your reputation is on the line because you are a Christian your allegiance to God is going to be challenged teenagers when you go to high school and the world around you has a different set of standards on what is normal for a teenager to have done by the time they leave high school. And you say, well, I'm sorry, but you see, I'm with Shadrach. See if they get that. <laughs> you can just walk off. They won't even know what to say to you. Your allegiance to God will be challenged every time you get paid and you ask, where is God in this? Your allegiance to God will be challenged when you made a vow before him to a spouse and the spouse is just not always cooperating, your allegiance to God will be challenged. Fill in the blank. The greatest competition 
for my allegiance to God is not a statue that is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide with a king. It's this king of me and my own kingdom. I want to challenge every single one of us here to answer this. Which part of my life? Which part of my life? Is it my money? Is it my career? Is it my dreams? Is it my plans? Is it my things? Is it my comfort? Which part of my life is my allegiance to myself greater than my allegiance to my God? I want to challenge you to answer that question this week. And once you know the answer, then I really want to challenge you to do something about it. Do something about it. It's a question of allegiance. What will you bow down to before being thrown into a fiery furnace of suffering. I want to close by talking to those of you that have never pledged an allegiance at all. You go to church because it's the thing to do in the South or because someone drug you here. But you're not necessarily here because you in your own heart have said, God is the king of my life. He died for me and I want to live for him. If you've never made that own declaration in your own heart, I want to help you do that this morning. You're not going to have to do anything weird. You don't have to stand up or anything. We're going to pray right where you're seated. Would you join me, everyone in the room? Let's pray. If you have never made this declaration, say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And I declare, now I want to live for you. I thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you will give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at Grace Life Church. Yeah.